Anna here. Did you know I have another podcast? And did you know it's all about failure? Well, at this point, you'd have to answer yes to both of those questions because I just told you. But my other show isn't just about failure. It's about failing your way to success. Yes, success. Because the most successful people are often just the people who've gotten up the most times after their failures. Don't believe me? Go download Fail Your Way to Success wherever you get your podcasts or go to failyourway.com for more info. Now back to the show. I wouldn't say we fell in love right away. I think we were, as they call it in the biz, trauma bonding. And then after eight years of being insufferably sober, I started drinking again. Addicts tend to be rather sensitive people. Aren't you Mark Maron? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, what happened to you? Now, if you're in recovery from drugs or alcohol, you've already conquered what was holding you back. But addiction is one of those things that can play whack-a-mole, and just when we've dealt with one thing, another comes popping out. Now there's a tool that can help you track your relationship with technology, pornography, gambling, and shopping. It's an app co-founded by my friend and recent podcast guest, Gabe Zickerman. It's called Onward, and here's how it works. If you're concerned about your potential overuse of technology, pornography, gambling, or shopping, you can immediately start to receive automated tracking and reporting of your use. A customized behavior change program, blocks on certain sites and apps, personalized AI coaching, and so much more. Sign up for a free or pro account by going to onward.org or just downloading directly from the App Store. If you're not sure whether or not you need the help, take the quiz at onward.org. Just be forewarned, it may give you some news you don't love but might need. Over 10,000 monthly users have already jumped on Onward, and the LA Times and 2020 are already talking about it. Soon enough, you may be too. That's onward.org. You guys, what's up? You're listening to Light Hustler. It's a podcast about addiction, recovery, mental health, all the fun stuff. I hope you're used to the new name. I'm used to it. And happy Valentine's Day. If you are, in fact, hearing this on Valentine's Day, I want to be your Valentine. I love you. I love you for listening. And what else? I want you to love yourself. This is what I want to tell you. I just released a new course. It's called How to Fall in Love with yourself. It is based on 15 years of giving relationship advice on the Today Show, the talk, Fox News. Uh, It's based on my memoir, Falling for Me. I took 15 years of spiritual study, combined it with hearing thousands of people's relationship issues, made it into a college talk. Now I have made it into a course that for a brief moment in time is at a half off discount. I am doing a launch right now, so if you are hearing this before February 23rd, 2018, you can go get it for $197, normally $297. Go to lighthustler.com slash love class. There's a return policy, so if you buy it and you hate it, you can get your money back, no questions asked. That's my Valentine's Day gift to you. I hope you take advantage of it. I am so proud of this product. Now, speaking of Valentine's Day, my guest today 
We talked about love. We talked about sex. We did that because she is the author of books about these things. Her name is Jen Matisa. She's the author of four nonfiction books about body, mind, and well-being, including her most recent book, which you should go by, Sex in Recovery, A Meeting Between the Covers. She has spoken and written widely. She was one of the first sober bloggers. Yeah, she's been doing it since 2010. Excuse me. Something in my throat. Maybe it's this talk about sex. Her blog is called Guinevere Gets Sober. Uh, But it's probably easier to just go to her site, jennifermatisa.com. Um, She's getting her second master's degree. This woman is no joke. Uh, I give that whole introduction in this because it is from one of my Facebook Live interviews. Um, It's good. We get into Suboxone. We get into sex. If you are wondering, when will I ever get comfortable with sex now that I'm sober? If you're wondering, should sober people be taking Suboxone? Are they sober? Keep listening. We get into it. This is Jen Matisa. David here with Jen Matisa. Hey, Anna. Thanks so much for having me on today. I'm so glad you're here. You guys, this is a super bizarre time to be doing it. It's uh, 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. I always say this, but if you like the people in your life, go ahead and share this with them. This is a conversation they will not want to miss. If you don't like the people in your life, don't tell them because this is a super, super (laughs) thing. Right, Jen? Um, Right. And so if you're hearing this on my podcast, thank you so much for listening. I am going to give Jen an introduction and talk a little bit about how we came to know each other, why this is the first time we're actually seeing each other, and and how we're going to take over the world. She's the author of four nonfiction books about body, mind, and well-being, including two books about addiction and healing. The most recent one is Sex in Recovery, A Meeting Between the Covers. And then there's also The Recovering Body, Physical and Spiritual Fitness for Living Clean and Sober. She has two other books. She's spoken and written widely, teaches at the University of Pittsburgh, and she was one of the first recovery bloggers. Now there are probably 2,500 sober blogs out there, but in 2010, there was just Guinevere Gets Sober. So that's, that's, that's enough. I could go on and on and on, but we got to know each other because I was working at The Fix and Jen was one of our first writers that was brought in. And I said, who is this badass woman who can write and has an opinion, <laughs> a point of view and is strong. And, um, and now we're finally talking. Yeah. We, I swear to God, I'm going to let you talk in just a second. We scheduled this a while ago because I, I wanted to release this as an episode on Valentine's day, because we are talking love. We are talking sex. And that is my Valentine's day gift to you. Thank you, Keith and Jordan for being here and anyone else who's here who hasn't commented. So, my first question for you, Jen, is, was it in doing the first book, which focused a little bit about sexuality, that you realized, oh my God, sex is a huge topic in recovery that people aren't talking about? Yeah, you know, first, before I answer that question, I'll just say the other sober blogger that was doing great work back then was Sober Julie, uh, Julie Elston Hyde up in Ontario. But that question is a really good one. And yes, when I did the first book for Hazelden, which is called The Recovering Body, which I have here, um, I think of it as the green book. Um, it 
talks about physical recovery. And actually, Hazelden called me. They had seen a story that I wrote for The Fix about the three triathletes who use triathlons to recover from addiction. And they saw that that story they saw and they called me, they emailed me and said, we want you to do a book about exercise and addiction. And I said, well, if you want to do a book about, you know, physical recovery, we have to include some other modalities in there like sleep and meditation, because meditation is actually a physical discipline. You bring your butt to the mat or you do yoga or whatever it is you breathe. And that's a physical discipline. Um, and then I said, we need to learn about pleasure. Um, so I wrote a little, like a chapter, one chapter about pleasure and sexuality. And when I went out and talked about that book across the country, people like the Q and A's, they were all about sexuality. Like people just asking their own questions about sex and about pleasure. And then Hazelden said, after we published that book, they said, well, what do we, what do we want to do next? We want to do like a meditations book or whatever. And I said, no, we need to do a book about sexuality. Um, so I was really excited to be able to do that book. And I've written a lot of stuff in my career, uh, 30 year career in writing, but that is probably one of my favorite things that I've ever written because it contains the stories. I interviewed 30, 36 ordinary people, three dozen ordinary people in recovery for that book. And I didn't get one person who turned me down for an interview. Like nobody said, no, I won't talk to you. I mean, I probably had another dozen people who were ready to talk to me and I just didn't have time to interview them. And I just think that's such a, a mark of how open people are in recovery and how much people just want to talk about sexuality. You guys go get that book. There is the Amazon link up there, but you could just search if you don't have time to go get that URL. Just search Jen Matisa, uh, Sex in Recovery. I can tell you it's $9.99 on Kindle. This is your Valentine's Day gift to yourself. <laughs> so what now? Now we come from an entirely repressed society. Would you agree? And would you say that that contributes to some of our issues with sexuality? So entirely repressed. What do you mean about by entirely? I mean, I think of us as half repressed and half like commercialized. And that's what I say in the book. Like we we are sold this hyper sexualized bill of goods all the time. And then we teach abstinence only to our children, you know, and we don't even talk to our children about sex at all. Um, so I think of us as not entirely repressed, but the non repressed part is irrepressible in a bad way, like in a, in a kind of destructive way or in a, let's say in a commercialized way. Yeah. Well, but I don't see the, the sort of advertising as anything to do with sexuality, anything to do with an honest representation of how we feel. I'm talking about how kids have all sorts of sexual feelings that they're developing and they're sort of, you're told kids masturbate, kids do all of these things that we act like, oh, no, 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 you don't become a sexual being until you become an adult. And that's why there are so many people who are so incredibly confused, ashamed, and having a lot of problems. Well, like the kids get the images, they can like, kids, their first exposure to porn usually is like, what, 12 or 10 or 10 or something like that. It's getting younger and younger all the time. And so they get these representations of sexuality. Um, and, and I'm studying adolescence right now in my second graduate program, like the, the age of adolescence is getting younger on the on the bottom end and older on the top end. So adolescence is expanded. So we act like, I mean, in some cultures, subcultures in this society, especially super religious ones, like we act like 
we, people shouldn't have sex until marriage, but the age of marriage is close to 30 now. So how, how's that, how's that real? So yeah, we are, we are pretty repressed, but I would say there are plenty of sexual images and, and plenty of sexuality in the culture that's able to, it doesn't foster honest sexuality, right? But, um, but it's, it definitely presses those buttons. Would you say that people, addicts and people in recovery have more sexual issues than other people? Oh boy. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm not sure that I could say that. I'm not a therapist and I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. Um, but I do, I mean, what surprised me when I did this book was the number of people in recovery who told me that they hadn't, I mean, people in their thirties even, who told me that they had never had sex before uh, without ever having a drink, you know, or a drug. And then I talked to people who weren't in recovery, who are just ordinary folks, civilians, as we call them sometimes. And they, they told me that they didn't have sex without drinking. So I think sexuality and drinking is really tied up together in our culture, sexuality and substance use. Mm -hmm. um, it's because of that repressiveness, that, that repression. And also because a lot of times women feel like they can't live up to the images in porn videos and, um, and I think probably men feel that way too. Um, but your book only talks to people in recovery, isn't that? Isn't that that's right? true. But that's true. But I, t I have a huge friend network, and I would they would say, "What are you working on now?" And I'd say, "I'm working on this book about sexuality and recovery." And and I'm finding out that people haven't have never had sex before without drinking or taking a drug. And they were like, "Yeah, well, I always drink before I have sex," you know. So I didn't interview those people for the book, but it was it was surprising to me how how many ordinary people in society just drink before they have sex because they don't like to take their clothes off. They have shame about their body. They're nervous about how they'll perform. Uh, they're, they're worried about, am I going to get wet? Am I going to be hard enough? Is it going to be, am I going to look right? You know, all that stuff. The same mm -hmm. stuff that we worry about when we get sober, except our feelings when we get sober are super sensitive. What do you define as good sex? <laughs> Oh, good sex. Well, that goes back to the question of what is sex for, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a question I asked for myself when I got sober. When I got sober, I had no idea, it seemed to me, what sex was for. Um, I think that good sex is honest sex. Um, I think honesty is the biggest aphrodisiac for me these days. Um, I don't know. What do you think of as good sex, Anna? What made you ask that question? Well, I think a lot of people are curious about it. I know for me, it's taken a long time for me to be able to reconcile hot sex with sex with someone I'm in love with. You know, that's okay. something I am just now experiencing for a long time. And I don't think I'm the only one. One was over here and one was over here. And because I associated hot with uh, kind of out of reach, kind of unavailable, kind of sexy, you know, sexy and sexy and mysterious are very, very close. So I, I think, and I'm certainly no therapist, one of the reasons intimacy and sexuality is, is so hard to reconcile is that sex and sexy and mysterious are so close. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think for me though, and I think I'm just realizing hearing you talk that um, I think that probably people's versions of sexy or hot um, 
they there's a big probably a big range. So for you, it's mystery. For me, it was performance. Like I needed to perform. I needed to look a certain way. I needed for the other person. I needed to see like I needed to see that uh, approval mirrored in the other person's expressions and and sounds that he was making and and so on. You know. So that that's what like when I got sober, I had no idea how to perform anymore. Like I didn't know what the role was. What's the role? Um, right. Yeah. So for me. Um, good sex is really honest sex, sex where I'm, I'm not expected to be anybody but who I am that day, even if it means saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to have sex right now. I just want you to hold me. A lot of men told me that, like they didn't always want to have sex. They just wanted their partners to hold them, hetero men, even, even, even gay men. Um, and they felt like, you know, the masculine, uh, the, the toxic kind of masculine role meant that they had to perform as a guy, as a dude. And so it, it's hard to learn. Uh, well, it's hard when we get sober to learn who we are, right? And then it's out, out in the world. And then it's hard to learn who we are without our clothes on. Um, I didn't even know what I liked. I liked seriously didn't even know what I liked. Um, and it took, and, and the realization when I got sober that it was going to take months, if not years for me to figure out a few things that I liked, it was like, I mean, it freaked me the hell out. I didn't know what to do with that information. I wanted it to just go back to the predictable, you know, but it's been such an amazing adventure to find out all the, the different things that I like that it's like there's a whole universe that keeps expanding. It doesn't contract. It just keeps getting bigger. And that's the same as like sober life. It just keeps getting bigger, you know? Mm -hmm. But it can be very, very, very scary when you first get sober and you think like, I'm horny. Like how horny were you when you first got sober? I, I detoxed from opioids, so I was like super horny. Um, and I just wanted, I wanted sex and that even scared me. Like the strength with which I wanted sex scared the shit out of me. Yeah, I, for me, it wasn't like that. I mean, Coke and Ambien were my thing, but I had spent the previous two years alone, alone or with gay men, so oh. sex not been something that even occurred to me and I was so lonely well, but during during your drug use you said like during yeah. your drug use yeah I was so lonely and so isolated when I got sober that I wasn't thinking about sex I was thinking about oh my god there are people around me again <laughs> you know it, I, I you know I I I think for me sexuality is how I got a lot of attention in the beginning so it wasn't about the actual intercourse. It was about the freaking energy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what do you, so what do you tell, what, do, what would you say to somebody who's like, yeah, I'm sober and I've never had sober sex and I'm freaked out. What should I do? <laughs> well, I'm not a therapist again, um, but I would just share with them that it's a normal experience. Like I would share with them that I have interviewed so many people. I have talked to so many people and the people that I talked to were all over the country, by the way. Um, and they were straight and gay and fluid and queer and trans um, and of all races and ages. So it was a really highly diverse population of people that I talked to, um, but all of them said that they were scared as hell to have sex when they got sober. And, at the, and some of them wanted it and some of them weren't sure that they wanted it, but a lot of them did want it. Um, and it's just such a normal experience to be super frightened. I mean, I was super frightened of leaving the house when I got sober. Like, how am I going to take my clothes off when I get sober? It's right. just normal. And it well, passes. 
take the first step. It just takes the first step, you know, um, take, take the first step with yourself first, buy yeah. a toy, buy a toy, buy some lube, use your hands, understand your body. That's the place where to start. Yeah, that's a good. Do you have any toy recommendations? Ooh, yes. Um, my favorite toys have always come from Good Vibes in San Francisco. Um, there are many, you can get many toys everywhere. Amazon sells toys now. I got a glass toy one time from China through Amazon and it took like three weeks to get here. Um, but it's wonderful. It's a G-Spot toy, pink G-Spot toy, I would show you. But <laughs> um, but I, I like, I mean, it depends on what you like. You know, it. I, I tell this, I think I tell the story in the book um, about how I just went by Sex in the City and how, who was it who, who bought the, the rabbit pearl vibrator? And I, I, right, Charlotte bought the rabbit pearl and then she hurled, holed up in her apartment for a week or something and nobody could find her. So I went out and bought a rabbit pearl. And actually that was before I even got sober because opioids actually kill your sex drive, um, sex, sexual response. Um, and I wanted to make sure I could like still have sex. And so like that was my toy that showed me like when I would go into any amount of withdrawal whatsoever, it showed me that I could actually have multiple orgasms. And I'd never had multiple orgasms in my life before. In fact, I, I didn't even think it was possible. Like I'd heard they existed. Right. Um, but when I had three or four orgasms, I was like, wow. And then when I got sober and I could still have that many orgasms or even more, I thought, wow, like sexuality must be okay. I mean, I did grow up in a Catholic family and I was told it was a sin to have sex before you were married. I was ostracized by my parents because they discovered that I was having sex. Um, so it was really, I had a very complicated relationship with my own sexual response. And that vibe, that toy showed me, uh, it, was the, it was the proof that I could have pleasure. And I think when we're in recovery, we have to redefine our relationship with pleasure. Yes. Well, okay. Two things. So wait, I just wanted to clarify. You got that rabbit when you saw it on Sex in the City and that's when <laughs> multiple orgasms when you were still using, still high on opiates. Right. And it was like, oh my God, there is, I am alive. Yes. Hallelujah. But at the same time, hold that thought. But at the same time, I found out that when I redosed and I like, I numbed myself out, like a jackhammer couldn't get me off. Like, like the drugs were actually killing my sex drive. So I really, that was one of the, that was one of the consequences, like one of the parts of my bottom, as it were, like, I just knew I'd have to give these drugs up because I wanted that back. Right. And, and a lot of people have talked to me too about um, being on antidepressants. Certain antidepressants can numb you so much and psychiatrists will prescribe them to men who have, you know, um, you know, who have problems with pre-ejaculation and, and, you know, people will start, women will start using vibrators and not be able to orgasm through anything but those, these really strong vibrators. Um, I love how this turned into a vibrator conversation. <laughs> I, I, I once asked, I think I asked um, one of my sources, Emily Nagoski, who wrote the wonderful book, Come As You Are. Do you know that book? It's so I, wonderful. Um, whether you could become addicted to vibrators or addicted to orgasms. She's like, any, any part of your, like, pleasure response that is like normal and natural is okay. Like if you have an orgasm, you can't say you can become addicted to that. Um, but I have heard that people, like some some people, some women I've talked to do think that vibes numb them out a bit. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I've experienced it firsthand. So, yeah. you know. So do you, not use, do you not use vibes? 
I, well, I do, but when I was on an antidepressant that really numbed me, um, that was the only way that worked for me and I hated it. So an orgasm, it's wonderful to have an orgasm, but, um, and it's wonderful to be able to talk about these things, but Mm -hmm. if I do know plenty of people who talk about, oh, I just, you know, women who will be like, I just don't like sex. And I'm like, what antidepressant do you take? And they tell me, and I'm like, you know, there are, I am certainly no psychiatrist, but there are other drugs that will not numb you in that way. That's right. And that might even help you. Yeah. And I just, it makes me so angry because like in uh, 25 years ago when pro or 30 years ago when Prozac came out, they swore up and down, oh no, this isn't going to have any kind of sexual side effects at all. And And if it does, it's only for men. And it turns out that a majority of people have sexual side effects. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, so I wanted to briefly talk about your own story. You're sober over 10 or 11 years at this point. No, I detoxed in 2008 and I, my sober date is in 2010 in January. So it's been eight years. And your story is about basically being this very high achieving, uh, you know, normal looking person on the outside. (laughs) You had migraine, you still have migraines and fibromyalgia. Is that right? Yeah. Went to the doctor, told the doctor your problem, and what happened? Well, they started giving me all kinds of drugs, including some opiates, including a strong opiate nasal spray that really, really turned me on. Then they gave me codeine when I was pregnant. Uh, They gave me furanol, which is a barbiturate, and they gave me all sorts of drugs. And I found out that the ones that I liked best that, I mean, they would ask, ask me what worked and they, and I liked the, the ones that I liked best were the opiates, uh, the ones that worked in that way. Uh, opiates energize me and also calm me down. It's almost like a cigarette for some people who are addicted to nicotine. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I became addicted. I mean, I became, I don't know, people ask me, when did your addiction start? I, I was taking daily Vicodin before I went to um, a university pain clinic in 20, uh, 2002. Um, and I didn't know then that I had fibromyalgia, but that's where I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And then they started me on pure uh, pure hydrocodone without the Tylenol. And then they, they gave me morphine, Oxycontin. And then finally, I wound up on fentanyl for three and a half years. And that's the drug that's in, in heroin that's killing everybody. And I didn't think that I'd ever get off that drug. The, the withdrawals from during the times that I would run out were just, I mean, they were horrifying. Uh, I could not have done it by myself. I hired a doctor um, to help me get off because my pain physician hadn't the first clue how to help me. And how... How quickly were you aware that you were addicted? I know you said people always ask you, but you know, you were, you were, were you doing doctor shopping? Were you doing all of that? No, I never did any of that. The, the one thing that I did wrong was change dates on on prescriptions, and that's a felony every every single time you do it. And I was very, very, I feel very grateful today that I was never arrested and sent to prison for that because I could have. Um, but no, I I got all my prescriptions legally from the doctor, the one doctor that I saw, um, and I. I knew that I was pro- I was having a problem when I couldn't control my use of the hydrocodone and morphine. Um, and I thought that when she switched me to fentanyl, which she did because I, I, I didn't have a period anymore. That's one way that opiates affect you. Um, they affect your sexual response because they, they get rid of your uh, sex hormones. And so you don't, a lot of people who, a lot of women who take heroin don't have periods. Anyway, I, I thought that when she switched me to fentanyl, I might have a better time of it, but it just, it just got worse from there. And then I was really in a bind because I simply couldn't, like you can pretty, you could probably detox off morphine. Uh, I could have, but fentanyl is fat soluble. It just stays in your body for so long. 
And I, I just, I was in a real bind. So I hired a, a doctor who um, took two months and oversaw de- an outpatient detox. And were you honest with the people in your life? You know, I've, I've, been, I've read a little bit about how, you know, your husband would come home from these trips and you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I, um, I, I, I hid everything. I did my best to hide everything and it got worse and worse. Um, I got paranoid. I got very paranoid, especially when I started changing dates on prescriptions and I started compulsively shoplifting, which is another thing I've heard a lot of people talk about in active addiction is shoplifting. I was arrested one time overseas for shoplifting. Um, and it just wasn't, it it wasn't good. It it was, um, it, it just under, there was no possibility of, um, intimate relationship that way. Now, I mean, I, I can't say that, you know, my relationships at that time were uniformly bad. They were good relationships. I had particularly a very good relationship with my son, but I just, I found out after I got sober that I hadn't been able to be a hundred percent present for him. And our relationship just, oh my God, it just, it got even better, like better and better after, um, after I got sober. Uh, the, the shoplifting thing. Yeah. You- this is, you mean you would be high and you would shoplift as a thrill? Well, look, when you're on fentanyl, yeah, you're never not on a drug. Like, and it's, there is no high. There is just like levels of numbness. <laughs> um, but I would be, I, I, I don't know. It would be like a compulsion. I would, it would be like an adrenaline high. I've read about it, compulsive shoplifting. It's like an adrenaline. You get off on the adrenaline rush of just taking something outright. Um, and I never stole anything valuable. I, I would steal, you know, stupid makeup, pieces of makeup, um, or I'd steal a pair of like $12 earbuds that I didn't need or, you know, crap that I, I just didn't need. But it was more of the rush of the adrenaline and, and the feeling that I, um, it was like, I, I mean, since doing, doing recovery work, I found out it's connected to a kind of feeling of being um, cheated early in life. And like, I was just going to take whatever I wanted. Oh, that's interesting. I was sort of theorizing, you know, that it had to do with, you know, you're one so numbed out on drugs that like, can I feel, you know, cause we're always sort of chasing the I think it was part of it. Yeah. yeah. Like it was part of it. Like, yeah, I'm going to jolt myself into, you know, feeling something. Yeah. Of just getting wow. sober. Former child shoplifter myself. So I got oh. it. So, and you were actually, I believe, the very first person I ever saw who wrote about Suboxone. Now Ooh. it's everywhere. But can you I talk? I love talking about Suboxone. Okay, go. Okay, what do you want me to say? That, that you were talking about, is that how he detoxed you, the one that he, you hired? So Suboxone saved my life. One of my most popular posts on my blog, Winnevere Gets Sober, is about um, Suboxone is a, a, an amazing detox tool, a monster maintenance drug. Um, so, yeah. He he helped me detox through Suboxone. And I had heard some stories. I, back then, there were online forums for people like me. Um, there weren't any. The Internet wasn't like it is today. Um, but I'd heard some stories that people have a real hard time getting off Suboxone if they stay on it for longer than three months. Um, so I decided, like, even though I felt really well on Suboxone, I decided after it started to turn on me a little bit, um, and my libido went away again and I, you know, some feelings went away. I thought, well, I better get off this drug. And my doctor didn't have plate maintenance spots anyway. So I had to detox. And so, um, after, after that, I, I kept my eye on Suboxone and I continued to talk with people who had really, really difficult times getting off of it. I started my blog and I started 
writing about Suboxone for The Fix and for my blog. And I heard from, I've heard from dozens and dozens and dozens of people um, across this country and internationally who have had just horrible experiences with Suboxone. Um, I mean, I could go on and on. I know our time is limited, but I wish if anybody wants to read about this, you can check it out on, on my blog. And I wish somebody would do a story about this right now. The push is to just give everyone who's addicted to opiates, you know, opioids, Suboxone. Suboxone mm -hmm. itself does not cure substance use disorder. It will right. stop once it may stop one's craving for opioids if you take it every day. Um, as you're supposed to, if you don't sell half of it and fund a heroin habit on the side or, you know, chip it or whatever, um, it can help you. Um, but it's not, it's by no means a cure. I mean, my own cousin, I had a cousin who died at the hands of, she was murdered by her drug dealer. She had a very bad ho ho heroin habit and she, she took Suboxone several times. I've met, I've spoken in lockups and in groups for women and, and I've met people who knew her and they said she was on Suboxone several times but it just, she couldn't make it work. So it's, it's not a cure. It's definitely, it definitely needs to be used um, with people who have entrenched opioid habits. But I also think that there are manufacturers out there who on the one hand make painkillers and on the other hand, make the maintenance drugs. And they've got really the best of both worlds. You know, um, they, the, a lot of people get addicted with a, through a back pain injury or they borrow meds from somebody for, the, for their, you know, a tooth that they had pulled or um, some kind of acute pain incident. Um, and they find pain kill, prescription painkillers and then they get this habit, then they move to heroin. And then the, the drug market, the drug industry sees that they can, they can go out there and say, opioid addicts, people with opioid use disorder have destroyed their neurology forever. And so they need to be on these drugs forever. And I just don't, I don't buy that everyone with opioid use disorder has destroyed their neurology. I mean, there, every, everyone has an individual physiology for one thing. And I think that substance use disorder just hasn't been studied enough. We don't know enough about it to say something like that. Right. right. What about the idea, you know, for my first about 10 years of sobriety, I truly believed anybody who had ever been addicted to any drug or alcohol needed to stay sober for the rest of their lives or jails, institutions or death. They needed to work a recovery program. Then I, when I started working at The Fix and when I've continued to work in this field, I hear from hundreds of people every week and I learned I was wrong. I yeah. learned I correct for me. Yes. And that of the world, just like when I was an active addict, was so small, I had no idea there was this big world out there. So what is your what is your stance on that? Is it sort of find whatever works for you? How do you know if you need to be sober? How do you know if you need to be sober? That's a different question from find what works for you. Um, I think it's a really dangerous stance to say that everybody can stay off of chemicals forever. I think that's really dangerous. It's just as dangerous as saying everybody who's ever used opioids needs to be on Suboxone. Mm -hmm. um, it's just as dangerous. Um, I don't think it's right to exclude people um, from recovery resources because they're taking a drug to help them improve their lives. Um, I think that's also really dangerous. Um, and I think that I think that we can need to continue having conversations like this one and the many, many others that are now, thank God, happening out there about what actually substance use disorder is so that we can 
find out more about it. We can share experiences and resources and people will be able to find what they need. It was only because I got onto a public forum and learned what was happening to me and learned what the options were that I found what I needed. So people need to talk with other people. And if I, I just personally think anything that's super hard line, it just plugs into my perfectionism gene or whatever it is in me. And I just can't do that. Like I cannot do that. You tell me you always have to do such and such. I'm just like, I'm not sure. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. It's very, I don't know. It's, it, it's just too hard line. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I, and I, I know that a lot of people will come around programs and they'll say, well, they told me I always had to do this and I definitely had to do this. And it's like, no, no, that's a person you encounter yeah. who said right. that. That is a sick and confused person. They are not representing anything. That is, I don't go and have an Uber driver say something to me and go, well, all Uber drivers say that you have to wait. <laughs> you know, it, it's a person. Yeah. Um, now, um, Mary Jo is saying, great, Jen. Um, we have to get close to wrapping up. And Missy asked a question. So um, I wanted to, and I wanted to, you know, this is going to be a Valentine's Day episode. So Missy is saying, and we can just get, not, neither of us are therapists, but I'm just going to put this question up here. After 33 years of marriage, how do we get the spark back being clean since 2009? What do you say, Jen? Well, there are lots of resources for you to investigate around that too. One of my favorite, there are two authors that I really love. One of them is um, the very well-known Esther Perel, um, who just wrote a book about infidelity. And she also wrote a book called Mating in Captivity. And it's all about um, getting the passion back inside a committed relationship. Um, the, you know, that's the captivity part. Um, so I would recommend that. She's also on a lot of podcasts and a lot of interviews. Um, and another really wonderful book that I discovered last summer is called Passionate Marriage. Um, it's by an, by an author called David Snarch. It's a little bit hard to spell his name, um, but Passionate Marriage is a really wonderful book. And he, he talks about um, really innovative and reliable strategies to help partners, longtime partners communicate in the area of sexuality. So those are two resources I would suggest. But it's not impossible. That's what I've learned is um, there are people who have developed methods for people who have been married for a long time and who have gone through lots of changes um, to develop passion again. And one thing Esther Perel is fond of saying is um, that that we will uh, we may have like three marriages. People will usually have three marriages, two or three marriages in their lifetime. And some people might have three different marriages and some people might have three marriages with one person. Mm. I love it. And she has a new, she has her own podcast now that Audible just released. Yes. Yeah. Where you're like, I, I haven't, I think it's, I, I've been, I've been uh, slowly making my way through um, uh, the infidelity book, um, uh, the state of affairs it's called. Um, so I've been listening to that on Audible and I've been listening to a bunch of her other talks. Like she's been on podcasts. And by the way, speaking of Audible podcasts, what I was thinking of earlier before, earlier before, the John Ronson podcast about porn. Have you heard that one? I haven't heard that one. You know, I don't, I don't, um, I, like porn is not a specialty of mine, um, but I've, I've listened, I've, I've read Dan Savage. Um, you know, I tend to look at people who um, look at a wide range of issues inside of sexuality, but is it good? I highly recommend, not just to Jen, to all of you, it's called The Butterfly Effect. And what John Ronson, who's this amazing journalist and writer, does is he, he finds out who started Pornhub, 
who's the person? It's this guy named Fabian. He goes and he interviews Fabian and then he traces the butterfly effect of what did starting Pornhub do to the porn industry, to people's sexuality? Wow, that's really super interesting. So it's a journalistic piece, like it's a journalistic podcast. That's awesome. I'll have to check that out. So, okay, so this became the John Ronson show and the Esther Perel show, and it's not, it's the Jen Matisse show. (laughs) Um, Jen, thank you so much for doing this. You guys go get her books, but especially get her most recent book, which is Sex in Recovery. And come back. I will be here next. Oh, 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 I'm doing a Facebook live today by myself at 530 Pacific Standard Time. Um, Come back then. Love you guys. Jen, thank you. Love you, Anna. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Lisa. Goodbye.